Acts 13, verse 1 through 12. Barnabas and Saul sent off. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. If you've ever driven along 787 and looked to the right along the banks of the Hudson as you're going south, you've probably seen this ship. This is USS Slater and was one of 563 destroyer escorts that battled U.S. Nazi boats in the, boats in the North Atlantic. Or Nazi U-boats, forgive me, in the North Atlantic. It defended naval task forces against Japanese subs and kamikaze air attacks in the Pacific. It had 20-millimeter anti-aircraft guns and depth charges for the submarines that it would encounter. It had diesel-electric propulsion and could travel at a rate of 20 knots, or approximately 24 miles an hour. Navy Brass knew there was a need for such a ship, and they planned and outfitted it accordingly. It required a trained crew with many specialty divisions, and a captain to lead these brave men. Built in Tampa, Florida, it was commissioned in May 1st, 1941. Commissioned, defined, to a point or to assign to a task or function. To appoint or to assign to a task or function. I didn't come here to talk about a ship. This ship was built because there was a need. War. The church was built because there was a need. The spreading of the gospel. Salvation through faith in Christ. The ship and its crew were commissioned. The church was commissioned by Jesus. We are the church. 
And Jesus tells us. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Jesus told us he built it. It's his church and nothing can stop it. But how will he do this? He tells us, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. Theologians call it the Great Commission. He tells us who all his disciples. He tells us where to the ends of the earth. And he tells us what? All that I have taught you. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus said this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Today we'll look at Acts 13.1-12. through 12. This is the historical account of Paul's first missionary journey. An apostle literally transformed by the sovereign hand of God. Commissioned specifically to take the message to the Gentile nations. Prepared, equipped, and directed. Commissioned, just like the Slater. I've looked at today's scripture from two perspectives. First, from the aspect of preparation, verses 1 through 5. Second, from the aspect of progression, verses 6 through 12. So let's see how Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes his first missionary journey of the church at Antioch. I think it's always kind of nice to look at a map to see where you're talking about, where you're going. And this kind of explains it. You see Antioch over here in modern-day Turkey. There's a second Antioch. Well, he'll be going later after this journey is finished, Antioch-Pisidian up above. But he heads out from the church in Antioch, heads down to Seleucia, which is a seaport, and comes over to Salamis and then to Paphos on the western, northwestern part of the island, which will end this journey of today's lesson. Okay. So let's take, start taking a look at the verses. Acts 13, 1 through 3, the calling. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they had laid their hands on them and sent them off. The first point, preparation. How the Holy Spirit equipped this church. Chapter 13 opens up by naming five prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. The Greek, Greek language particle, particle, which is untranslatable to our English, was used to distinguish two different sets of coordinates. Here the particle te was used in the Greek language to distinguish these two groups, prophets and teachers. It is widely believed that Barnabas, Lucius, and Simeon were the prophets, and Menaean and Saul were the teachers. The prophets and apostles helped lay the foundation for the church as they proclaimed the word of God. They were more forth-tellers than foretellers. Although, 
on occasion, they did announce things to come. The teachers helped to ground the converts in the doctrines of faith. This is how the church taught its doctrine before the New Testament was formed. Although biblically we don't know a lot about Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean, from the text we are able to discern that there is a diverse culture, economic, and racial mix when adding Barnabas and Saul as it should be. Listen to Revelation 7-9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. For Simeon was probably from Africa, as his name Niger means black in Latin. Next, Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, which is current-day Libya. The belief by some here is that Simeon, likely an African, was from Cyrene, and also may very well be the same Simeon of Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus on the way to Golgotha after Jesus collapsed from carrying the cross to his crucifixion. This Simeon's identity as a cross bearer, however, is not confirmed here in this scripture. Menaean was raised as a foster brother, as the Greek text implies that is read with Herod Antipatus. That's not the Herod of last week's lesson who was eaten by worms. Menaean was also a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. Try and picture the irony here. Menaean served on the court of Herod Antipatus. Jesus was sent to Herod Antipatus when Pilate discovered Jesus was a Galilean and he didn't want to deal with his jurisdiction. Herod mocked Jesus and then sent him back to Pilate. Menaean may very well have witnessed Jesus mocking. Menaean now is a disciple of Jesus, helping to advance the gospel to the known world. I hope you can imagine the access of historical knowledge and personal experience the author had through the cultural diversity of these men. Now add Barnabas, whose name appears first on the list, probably because he was the most influential of these leaders at the time. Sent from Antioch, Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus, now will return to Cyprus, sent by the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was a man well known to be of great encouragement to others and of having received the gift of prophecy. Last but not least, Saul. Saul Paulos is his given Jewish and Gentile name. In chapter 9, we saw Paul's conversion directly by the hand of Jesus. He was commissioned there to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Let's look at that commissioning in Acts 9, Saul's commissioning. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now we see this apostleship come alive. It wasn't dormant, but 10 to 12 years were spent in preparation. The year before his missionary journey began, remember Paul came to Antioch at the request of Barnabas to teach. Verse 13 to 
to be, the Spirit chooses. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As these diverse believers were worshiping and fasting, the call came from the Holy Spirit. If you're searching the scriptures for harmony in a church, this is a good place to look. There were men of God, aware of their commission, now receiving some specific directions, set apart for me. They were told by the Holy Spirit, there was no crying, there was no complaining, no grumbling, no rationalization. There was only a church ready to serve the God. And the evidence is in verse 3. The church obeying. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They blessed them and then sent them off. Many churches do this also. We lay hands on our global partners before we send them off into foreign lands. They are missionaries just like all of us who serve away from home. It's not a doctrine or a command to lay hands. However, it is a custom that we often see in Scripture. By blessing them, the church was not only confirming them, but they were identifying themselves with these missionaries. Your call, that's our call. As Christ commissioned you, so he commissions us. Just as Paul knew he would be in the synagogues, he would be affirmed and motivated by the church with a unity of conviction. But what held the greatest of all conviction for the apostles and the church that endorsed them was the Holy Spirit's leadership. What we can see commanded here in Scripture is our commission. To spread the gospel, Jesus said, again in Matthew 28, paraphrasing, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right now, I just take a little chance to talk to you that we saw this church fasting and worshiping. We see fasting in the Bible at, at, at different occasions. Why do they fast? I'd just like to share with you, two weeks ago I fasted for three days for dietary reasons. Kind of kicks my diet off and gets me started. Last week, I dieted for spiritual reasons. I really wanted to experience said, what this church went through. So I fasted. I'm very thankful I wasn't speaking on Daniel and Alliance then. <laughs> but what does fasting do? For one thing, it applies to food. Food is sustenance. Food sustains us. We cannot live without food. We cannot live without God. And this brought their minds back. Second thing it does, food motivates it. You probably don't think of it in this way, but think of what you're thinking about the minute you get out of church. I'm going to go to lunch. I'm hungry. Our mothers usually load our refrigerators up with food. They're prepared. They're motivated. Their kids have to eat. They know. This motivation is something that we need towards the gospel. And this church was motivated by their fasting paradoxically, they took their mind off the food and they put it on God. And that pushed them ahead and motivated them towards the goals 
and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in preparing them ready to follow. Let's look at Acts 13, 4 through 5. I call that the Jew first. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is the part I'd like to approach from the position of progression, and by that I mean how now the narrative describes the first account of a planned overseas mission carried out by representatives of a particular church rather than by solitary individuals and begun by a deliberate church decision inspired by the Holy Spirit rather than motivated by persecution. It seems like immediately they took off from Antioch to Seleucia. I have to believe that Luke here saw no need to give us unimportant details. There clearly were some needs that they were going to have when they were told to set apart Barnabas and Paul, the church took care of those needs. Verse 4 reminds us the Holy Spirit sent them out. Verse 2 told us the Holy Spirit chose them. So the note, we know they were both chosen and sent by the Holy Spirit. We also know that we are both called and sent. God's word in Matthew 28 confirms that for all of us. It's important because there is no confusion that it's the work that he has given us. The gospel going to the Gentiles. The gospel is going out by the sovereign hand of God. But verse 5 tells us that when they arrive in Salamis, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews first. Why? First, the promise of the Messiah was known to the believing Jew. They would be anticipating his arrival. Even the disciples believed the kingdom would be given to them as God's chosen people. Remember in Acts 1.6 when the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Later Paul tells us in Romans 1-16, through Romans 1-16, through Paul explains, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God to reveal from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luke next informs us that they had John to assist him. Acts 3 for 5. The gospel writer Mark assists. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John was the cousin of Barnabas. He is better known to us as John Mark, or just plain John. He's the author, author of the gospel according to Mark and also believed to be the interpreter for Peter. It was, Mark's mother's Mar- it was Mark's mother Mary, whose home Peter went to when he had escaped from ta- captivity under King Herod in last week's sermon. Acts 13, 6-8, the proconsul summons Paul and Barnabas. 
when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus as a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. Now verse 6 picks up with the events of their mission. They cross the island of Cyprus, preaching the gospel along the way, and then they arrive at Paphos on the northwest tip of the island. There they call on the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, who summoned them to hear the word of God. We're not told why he wanted to hear it. He may have had a sincere interest in their faith, or as a non-believing Gentile and Roman official, he knew that what they had to tell the inhabitants that he governed over may possibly have impacted the stability of his rule. Many Roman leaders, although exploiting the Jewish people, admired their dedication to their faith in God. Some leaders thought they could gain spiritual influence by the way of the deceptive practices of these pseudo-prophets like Bar-Jesus. We see this evident in the life of Sergio Paulus. Bar-Jesus, or Elemis, which is his Gentile name, is in the proconsul's employ. Elemis was a Jew, as denoted by his name Bar-Jesus, which is translated son of Joshua or Jesus. But no orthodox Jew or practicing Jew would ever practice magic, divination, or sorcery. He would have been known amongst the believers as a false prophet. Sergius Paulus would have used him to try and gain influence in the future and perhaps to decipher the unknown to take that to his advantage. Verse 8 tells us that Elymas tried to turn the proconsul against the apostles' advancement of the gospel. Why? Because Elymas knew the very influence he had would come to an abrupt end should the proconsul believe in the gospel. He would be exposed, or even worse, he could be in real jeopardy when Sergius Paulus found out and discovered that he was a phony. It's also true that whenever the gospel goes forward, Satan schemes to stop it. We know that and we've experienced it in our lives. I'd like to speak a little bit about false prophets and their self-gain. And before we cast Elemis into the eternal flames, should we ask ourselves, do we mix God's truth with Satan lies? How about palm readers, astrologers, tarot cards, maybe horoscope? How about karma or teaching the denier of Christ's deity or denying God's sovereignty? 1 Corinthians 10.22 says this, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? It matters to God. So what did Paul do? Let's see. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, 
Will you not stop making the crooked paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeing people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You know, in verse 9 here, we see that Saul, for the first time, is called by his Gentile name, Paul. He was a Hellenistic Jew, a Pharisee named after the first king of Israel. But from now on, we'll see him referred to as Paul. The same second name as the proconsul Sergius Paulus. I don't think it's any coincidence that this Jew, this Roman citizen, will now assume a customary name more familiar to the people which he has been commissioned to witness to. Saul, the zealous Pharisee, who persecuted believers of Christ, now will be more predominantly known as Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, who will spread the gospel to the Gentile nations. Paul's letter will become a large part of the New Testament, and his letters of encouragement and correction to these Gentile churches provide illumination to our faith today. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, brings us the living word of God, which we call Scripture. Verse 9 is completed when Luke informs us that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and then glares intently at Elymas. Verse 10 tells us how Paul rips into this imposter and calls him an enemy of all righteousness, son of the devil, a villain, full of deceit. But then he asks him a rhetorical question. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And it's really interesting the phrasing that he uses here in this question. Look at Luke 3, 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Paul seems to quote from Isaiah 40 here. Luke, in his gospel account, in Luke 3, 4, says almost the exact quote. Luke quotes John the Baptist as he announces the coming of Jesus. Both Paul and John the Baptist quote this verse in very similar circumstances. Paul is introducing the gospel to the Gentile nations. John is introducing Jesus to the people of Jordan. John calls the people to repentance, and Paul calls Elymas to repentance. But both point to Jesus. Paul's effort here is in no doubt emphatically to expose the charlatan who mixed Judaism with perverted spiritualism so prevalent in the Roman Empire. Paul needed to establish the truth of Christianity against the false gods of Sergius Paulus. By the power of God, Paul brings down the power on, of the Almighty on this fake prophet in the form of temporary blindness. Who would the proconsul believe the real prophet of God is now? What's interesting here is that Elymas was blinded just like Paul in his conversion. His blinding was temporary also. Perhaps this was an act of grace on Paul's part in an effort to give Elymas time to repent 
like he himself was given. But we're not told by scripture. Whatever the case, this was not a time for the tolerance of false teaching. No matter what reason, Sergius Pallas wanted to hear the word of God. And upon seeing the power of God, he became a believer. It said he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. It's significant that he did not say the teachings of Paul. Evidence that Sergius Paulus knew where the authority of Paul's word came from. As the praise team comes forward, back to the Slater. The USS Slater was decommissioned on July 5th, 1991. And it was consequently placed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Its life of service is over, and now she rests on the banks of the Hudson River. As believers, our decommissioning occurs when the dear Lord calls us home to our final resting place, eternity with our Lord. Jesus' final words in Matthews, we know as a great commission, were given to all who are his disciples. Paul the Apostle understood his commission. He accepted his directive to bring the gospel to the entire world and glorify God. He was also a disciple of Christ, like us. So what can we learn here from this story? In one aspect, we have the same commission as Paul, to take the gospel to a lost world. Our culture may be different, but there is still a world in dire need of the gospel message. To hear of Jesus' perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sin for all who have faith in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. Second, Paul was prepared. God does not send us out unarmed. Jesus sends us with the gospel and all he has taught us. And he sends us the Holy Spirit to guide us. God gives us pastors and teachers to help us bring clarity. He also gives us community and a place to grow. Paul took time to grow in wisdom. He fasted and sought the Spirit's guidance. He spoke the message boldly and unashamedly. So we must prepare our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The time Paul and the other disciples spent in worship and searching his will was vital to them. They also were led by the Spirit and saw we see no evidence of them trying to take the glory for themselves. Pray for a love for others. Understand that you, while you were still a sinner, undeserving of God's grace, he sought you because he loved you. God has commanded us to love and his gospel is love. We need to sacrifice our time and our possessions for his service. Giving our precious time and possessions for the glory of God. We need to make time for our commission. We need to sacrifice our hard-earned money and savings for his calling. Paul worked as tent maker to sustain himself throughout much of his ministry. We must persevere through the struggles and the hardships. God never promised us a chicken in every pot. He did promise us eternal life to all who believe in his son. And the son said, if you love me, you will obey me. God sends the spirit to lead us. 
in perhaps one of the most gracious acts for us, he sends us the Holy Spirit to be sovereign over our ministry, our leader and our comforter in our time of need. Amen. I want to share one little story. I know I've been a little bit long, but there was a quote that was in my readings that I was hesitant to share with you. And one of the pastors said that if you do not have a heart for missions, you do not have a heart for Jesus. It sounds offensive, but as in my study I realized it was profoundly true. Jesus loved us and sent us on mission to bring his gospel to others. He called us to do that, and that should be our heart. You are a disciple of Christ. Mission living is not an option. It is your calling. We must prepare our hearts like the church in Antioch and then let the Holy Spirit lead our progression on our journey. We too can glorify God and experience the joy Paul found in serving the Lord. Father, thank you for this opportunity and thank you for the the wisdom and the love that you have given us. I pray for the hearts of our people to be more like Jesus, love others, and bring your mission to the world. In his name I pray, amen.